Okay, everyone, welcome back to our third and final session today. Um, it's a talk from Professor Nicholas Humphrey. So Professor Humphrey is a theoretical psychologist based in Cambridge who is known for his work on the evolution of human intelligence and consciousness. His interests are wide ranging. He studied mountain gorillas with Diane Fossey in Rwanda. He was the first to demonstrate the existence of blindsight after brain damage in monkeys. He proposed a celebrated theory of the social function of the intellect. And he's the only scientist ever to, to edit the literary journal Granta. His books include Consciousness Regained, The Inner Eye, A History of the Mind, Leaps of Faith, The Mind Made Flesh, Seeing Red, and most recently Soul Dust. He's been, he's been a recipient of several honours, including the Martin Luther King Memorial Prize, the British Psychological Society's Book Award, and the Puffendorf Medal and the International Mind and Brain Prize. He's been lecturing in psychology at Oxford, assistant director of the sub-department of animal behaviour at Cambridge, senior research fellow in, the par in parapsychology at Cambridge, professor of psychology at the New School for Social Research in New York, and school professor at the London School of Economics. You can learn more about his work at www.humphrey.org.uk. So, Professor Humphrey, whenever you're ready, um, let's just get started. It's brilliant to have you on board, and I'm really excited, excited about this. Well, thanks. Um, you hear from that introduction why I've got so little hair left. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. It's not the way I'd choose to uh, address you on this subject. It's particularly, it's odd to be talking about placebos uh, at one remove like this. So as you all know, that what's really important to the placebo effect in medicine is the interaction and trust between the doctor and the and the patient. And of course, putting uh, this this uh, wireless connection in between us isn't isn't the way to do that. But at least I hope you're going to listen carefully to what I say, even if you don't entirely trust me. You can we can come to that um, in our discussion. I think you can you can see my screen. It's the title that I gave Niall of the talk. Um, it is about placebos. I'm going to be talking about placebos, but I want to do. Uh, I want to talk about quite a lot of other issues too. In fact, I want to share with you some ideas I've been developing over the last three, year, three years, not three years, a few years, about how the environment we find ourselves in, moment to moment, affects the kind of people that we are, how it affects our personality, our intelligence, and our mental and physical health. I'm going to explain how we humans have evolved to, as I put it, to take the temperature of our social and material surroundings and to make adjustments to our character accordingly, so as to give us the best chance of flourishing as individuals. So I'll discuss how these adjustments can happen without our knowing it, as we respond instinctively to information about opportunities and threats in the outside world. But of course, we sometimes get it wrong. We may form a false picture of our prospects, perhaps one that is actually optimistically false. Um, we may believe, say that, say, that a danger has passed when it actually hasn't passed, or that help is about to arrive when it hasn't or when, when it isn't. And so that will indeed bring me to the subject of placebos, placebo treatment for illness, make-believe treatments that promise more than they can actually deliver, and still, as a matter of fact, often work. Here's a nice example. Um, how could it be that Spending 30 hours in the carcass of a dead whale can cure a man's rheumatism. You'll see the patient 
patiently uh, setting his time out in the carcass of the whale. Well, apparently in Australia in the early 20th century, that's really what people did. And it worked. Many good cases of people coming away, walking with a new free step, their rheumatism had vanished. Well, how can that kind of thing uh, actually uh, be occurring in our minds and our bodies? Uh, I'll come to that later, but I want to start with a story about monkeys. It's a story about uh, a visit I made to the baboon camp in the Okavango Swamp, where Dorothy Seyfarth and Robert Seyfarth did their research on baboons. That's not a baboon. That's actually a vervet monkey sitting in the trees outside the camp. Um, well, Dorothy came. I was sitting at a table out there. And vervets were up in the tree, um, chattering away. I wasn't listening especially. Dorothy came rushing out of, out of her cabin saying, where is it? Where Where is it? Uh, and I said, what do you mean, where is it? She said, where's the leopard? I said, what leopard? They're making a leopard alarm call. Um, Dorothy and Robert were the first people to establish that velvet monkeys give signals about predators. Um, and so she was actually very nervous. Um, so we immediately started looking around us for where the leopard might be. And we looked under the table and we looked behind the tree and here and there, uh, no sign of a leopard at all. And then I looked back at the table and there was my copy of Southern African Wildlife um, with a picture of a leopard on the outside cover. Now, these monkeys had been reacting reflexly to this image. Um, it's kind of, kind of a crazy thing to do. They must have, in some sense, known that wasn't a real leopard. Nonetheless, it triggered the leopard alarm call in, in the monkeys, um, in which I'm sure there was no conscious involvement. But surely you think it's humans don't react like that. Well, maybe they don't react like that to leopards. Um, but how about this? Melissa Bateson, an old friend of mine, did an experiment in the lab up in Newcastle. She's a comparative psychologist. This wasn't a study of, on, of, of animals. It was a study of the other people in her lab. In the tea room, um, under the coffee, where the coffee was and milk were kept, to and above where they were kept on the table, she put up uh, an image of, in one case, of flowers, in the other case, of a pair of eyes. And she changed it each week. And what she wanted to know was whether or not thinking that somebody was looking at you when you either paid or didn't pay for your milk as you took it would actually change the way you behaved, even if you weren't aware of what was happening. And look at the extraordinary effect. Um, I can't point it out directly on the screen, but you'll see down at, at week one, um, they were paying uh, much more for the milk than when the eyes were present, than when the flowers were present. Then it went back up to paying more again, and so, so on. Um, and this effect has been repeated uh, several times now, both, both by Melissa and other people. Uh, having the... It, it, even believing that subconsciously that you're being watched makes you behave more honestly. It's actually been put to work in the Newcastle Police Department now, where they've started putting eyes in car, in, in car parks where people leave their bicycles, and they report that if there are pictures of eyes on the wall, people are less likely to get their bikes stolen. Um, so 
Well, it does happen in humans. Uh, we, the, the, when asked afterwards, people had no idea why they were behaving differently. Um, and it happens at all sorts of levels. In fact, research has been uncovering a huge range of these covert influences on in our behavior and our, in our thinking. Um, they're called priming effects. Um, they prime you behave, behave to behave in a new way. Um, and they may be, we may be quite unaware of them. And nonetheless, they'll have major effects on our attitudes either positively or negatively. In fact, we could say that we're all the time the target of what's Vance Packard famously called hidden persuaders. Back in 1957, that was the name of his book, and you probably can't read that there, but the subtitle is An Introduction to the Techniques of Mass Persuasion Through the Unconscious. And now, in this talk, we're not talking about Propaganda designed to manipulate us against our better instincts, which in better interests, which was Vance Packard's target. Um, I'm going to be talking about clues which we've been designed to respond to for our own good, designed by natural selection, because it actually led to more chance of our survival. Imagine yourself walking through a big city, you know, could have been a jungle. Uh, there are indeed, of course, commercial advertisements out there, and there, but also all sorts of other factors pulling us in one way or another, sounds and smells and hints of opportunity or danger. A city like New York is in fact rather like an enchanted wood where we're tugged this way and that. Um, and that's as we go through life in ways we really don't, uh, we're not aware of, but psychologists are just beginning to understand. There are all these strange influences of changing the kind of people we are, the way we present ourselves to the world. I'm going to tell you about one especially remarkable example of, of priming um, that I heard about at a conference in Tokyo recently. That's the name of the group from uh, Gakuen University. What they did was to study, they studied uh, subjects who were playing a prisoner's dilemma game uh, against a computer as it happened. Prisoner's Dilemma is a famous game used in cognitive psychology to look at how people, uh, what decisions they make about trusting or not the other, other player in the game. Whether they, if they both, if both players cooperate, everyone does well. If one player defects and they both defect, they both do very badly. If one player defects and the other trusts him, um, then the one who trusted does badly and so on. So there's a good outcome. Uh, the best outcome is to trust. You all do better, you trust. The worst outcome is to, is to both uh, defect, to not cooperate. Now, here's a picture of the setup. Here's a subject playing this game against, in fact, a computer. Um, and you'll see in the background, I hope you can, a small laptop. Um, nobody drew any attention to the laptop, just was sitting there with a screensaver running on it. On that screensaver were two alternative patterns which had been devised by another psychologist long ago to be a, remind people of, about being cooperative or about being uh, mean in a situation where you could help somebody. Um, this is the so-called cooperative um, uh, animation, and you can see why. Um, the red one is helping, red dots helping the green one over. Um, now, the alternative was this, this one. Okay, the red one is actually pushing him away and make, getting in the way of the green one jumping the barrier. Okay, now, 
Nobody drew any attention to these images playing on the screensaver. And of course, they're very schematic and it's not at all, uh, I mean, one level, it's not at all obvious what they're about. But the researchers found they had a dramatic effect on how people played the game. Um, I think that's the, uh, the results they found. Uh, the hinder top line is where um, the, they've seen the, on the, on, the, on the laptop, there was this uh, not uncooperative game going on. Um, and in the help, there was the one where the red dot actually helped the green dot over the barrier. And now the arrows show um, how many cooperated and how many defected of the people playing the game. When they saw um, uh, uh, an animation which indicated uh, non-cooperation, then they didn't cooperate in playing the game against the computer. Um, they defected, and you get the other result is the other way around. Um, it's, I think, an extraordinary example. Um, there was no reason to think that people had, had noticed, though they obviously had, what was going on on the screen, and yet it, it was producing a huge difference in how nice people were in playing that game. Now, uh, it's just so it's just as the leopard puts the wind up the monkey, or uh, or the or the eyes put the, uh, encourage us to be more responsible. Here's an example of how hints of cooperation that you want in a good or a bad environment um, make you behave differently in relation to a, another person or a computer. But it needn't be evidence of cooperation as such. <clears throat> uh, David Sloan Wilson, an American uh, evolutionary psychologist has been doing research on what he calls community perception. He also uses a game rather like The Prisoner's Dilemma to see how people, how cooperative people are going to be in playing a game against somebody else. And again, they're playing actually against the computer. Um, uh, in the, they're told, however, that the person they're playing against either lived in the house above or in the house below. In other words, not entirely obvious, but if you look closely, you'll see it's pretty shambolic that the upper cabin, and the nice one is the lower one is all nicely painted and with nice green grass edges and so on. Um, and when they were told that uh, the subject came from the high quality neighborhood at the bottom, they were much more likely to cooperate in the game than when they were told that the subject came from the, the, one, the one above. Um, and Sam Wilson argues that what they're responding to are hints very simply on the dimension of order as against disorder. It looks as if coming from an orderly neighborhood is a kind of proxy for being morally, ethically good. You're much, you expect people to cooperate more if they come from that background than if they come from the disorderly one. <clears throat> well, again, other, there have been other studies which confirm this. Some rather surprising effect, obviously rather important in terms of our way we plan our environments and so on. Um, here's another study, now done in a lab. Uh, you'll see on the left a so-called orderly office, and the, on the right is a disorderly office, perhaps a rather more familiar one, at least to academics. Um, now, subjects were brought into these one of these rooms and did, did a survey. Survey had nothing to do with the experiment, but they they were conduct, conducted a survey. It took them about five minutes, and at the end of the survey, they were given or offered three dollars for the for having taken part in the experiment. 
they were told, though, that um, if they felt like it, they could donate the three dollars to the lab um, and were told that the lab, in fact, had a fund for supporting charities. Um, and they could they could not they could not take their money. They could leave it behind if they wanted um, as a as an offering. Um, the figures below those two rooms show the result. Subjects who'd taken the survey in the nice, clean, orderly room donated not just three dollars if they'd been given, but three dollars nineteen um, to the university's charity. Um, those who'd taken the survey in the disorderly room rather grudgingly gave just $1.29. Um, and it wasn't all to do with uh, just uh, money either. Um, it seems to alter their sense of what kind of people they themselves were. They were also offered a snack at the end of this experiment. Um, the snack was either a, uh, I didn't get to it here, was either an apple or chocolate. Now, apple, of course, is a is is the thing you should eat if you're trying to be uh, morally upright and look after your health and everything. The chocolate is what an, a more selfish, indulgent person would do. In the orderly room, people opted mostly for the apple. In this orderly room, they opted for the chocolate. So uh, another rather strange and surprising effect, and one again we already need to know about if we want to run our societies to produce the outcomes we'd prefer. But these priming effects aren't, of course, just about cooperativeness or about responsibility. Um, I'll run through a few recent findings. The journals are absolutely full of them. For example, uh, if you the effect of red red light has on us, this is actually an exhibition from the Serpentine from a few years ago. Um, it's well known, it's been well known for ages that in red light we become more nervous and we also become more amorous and more risk-taking. New studies have also shown though that in red light we become less creative. Uh, we're more likely to make mistakes in, in, in uh, games which require us to, to think hard about creative solutions. Like for example, um, in red light people are 30% worse at solving anagrams than they are in ordinary daylight. Um, it looks as if somehow red light is biasing them or biasing the way they think about the world in general. We'll come back to what that might be about later. Or here's another rather famous example. Uh, it comes out of work on so-called terror management theory. It's been shown that if we're reminded of death, our political attitudes change. <clears throat> we're more likely, for example, to oppose gay marriage or to support creationism. And the way this was shown in this experiment is people were given, uh, met by people on the street and asked to give answers in, to an interview about their political moral attitudes. The, the, the interview was either conducted in a neutral place or within 100 yards of a funeral parlor, as they're called in the United States. Again, nobody drew attention to the fact that there was a funeral parlor nearby. But when subjects were in vicinity of a funeral parlor, they were much more likely to disagree with evolution, believe in creationism, to be anti-homosexual, anti-gay marriage, and generally to hold right-wing attitudes. Um, here's another example. What do you think that advertisement effect it has? Well, on men, men it probably has no effect at all, but it's shown that presenting women in the sexual stereotype can make them um, uh, 
much more risk and less risk taking and much more uh, uh, boring in a way. They score worse on intelligence tests and on creativity tests if they're exposed to that sort of advertisement. It shows that research has shown that for a woman, even putting her name and her gender at the top of an exam paper can uh, reduce her score on a maths test. Um, somehow being reminded of what's expected of women uh, is covertly changing how people actually think and behave. Um, there's another example. I run through these because I think it's not important to show just how general these effects are. Well, here's a street full of garbage. When we see or we smell garbage, we release antibodies into our bloodstream straight away without having to actually be exposed to any infection. Um, but more than that, when we smell garbage, we become more moralistic um, and more critical of other people. And when it comes to uh, taking risky behavior like sex, for example, we're much more likely to use a condom if there's a smell of rubbish in the air. Or I'll give you one final example, it's an astonishing one, I think. Imagine we read a story about going out on the town at night. And the story has two possible endings. It either ends with the words, the city was mine. Open, optimistic view of what the city is. Um, uh, sorry, no, opposite. I mean, selfish view of the city was it is. The other story, the same story ended, the city was ours, as if the narrator had embraced everybody else within the city. Now, the experimenters looked at the effect of hearing these two stories on how people perceive a famous figure in psychology. It's called the Navan figure. You can either read that, obviously, as an S or as an a series of Fs. If you take a global perspective, you see it as an S. If you take a, a, a much more focused view of uh, bit by bit, you see the Fs. The people who had heard the story saying the city was mine, were much more likely on first seeing that to report the letter F. People who saw or heard the story, the city was ours, were much more likely to immediately see the S. But it's such a tiny effect, created obviously only over seconds in a way by those two sentences, was changing the way people see the world, either, either globally or, or, or narrowly, either generously or as selfishly. Well, as I said, these findings have been coming, tumbling out of the research labs. There's been quite a lot of controversy about them, and some of the results haven't held up. But of course, uh, that's true in science. Many, most of the ones, certainly the ones I've talked about, are pretty solid. Um, the question is, it's all very exciting. How, how can we make sense of it all? Well, if we take the examples one by one, we can likely come up with ad hoc explanations as to why each of these things I've described might have, or why that response might have been adaptive, might have been evolutionarily uh, successful. For example, let's say, why should we be anxious in red light? Well, I think there's quite a good, good explanation. It's one I've certainly used in some of my other work. I find that monkeys don't like risk red light, for example. And I think the reason is that um, red light in nature is associated with danger. It's the color of the sky at dusk and dawn where 
you're at much more risk from predation and you're much more risk from accidents because you just simply don't have a such good and clear view of things. It looks as if our ancestors long ago learned that red light was a risky environment as against blue. Um, take the next example, why should we uh, release our immune, an immune response when we see or smell an illness? Well, quite clearly it's because in the past uh, it's become, we've evolved to realize that uh, there's a greater infection risk and therefore we should basically put on our masks and, um, and behave in social distancing ways. Um, each of these things you can explain with a local explanation like that. But I think we deserve a grander theory of how all these effects fit together. Um, and in the next half hour, I'm going to try and give you one. And for me, it's begun with thinking about the evolutionary basis of the placebo effect in medicine. Placebos, I think, are in fact a very special case of priming by environmental cues. We only have to give a, be given the hint that we're in a healing environment and we change our own health profile uh, in appropriate ways. When we're in pain, for example, all it may take is the sight of a doctor and our symptoms begin to disappear because we believe we're going to be looked after. And we don't have to be so self-protective. Now, of course, the placebo effect is generally regarded as a good thing. Um, and so it, in fact, I think in many ways it can be. Um, but from the point of view of evolution, it's actually deeply paradoxical. Not many people have seen this. They all think placebo effect, great. You know, no wonder it's evolved. But why? Um, when we heal ourselves under the influence of a placebo treatment, of course, uh, we're healing ourselves. It's a case of self-cure. But if people have the capacity to heal themselves by their own efforts, then why not get on with it as soon as needed? Why wait for permission from a sugar pill or a witch doctor that it's time to get better? Why do we need the fairy if, in fact, we're capable of self-healing? It's a serious question, and when I first started thinking about it, I thought this is actually very odd, um, because it would seem that if evolution was doing the best for us, it might have made certain that we responded immediately if and cured ourselves when we had the opportunity. We didn't wouldn't have to wait for permission from someone else or from some other uh, signs of uh, that, that we were being treated. Um, well, first thought was that there are in fact parallels for this in quite a few other areas of life, and maybe they can give us a clue. In fact, it's really quite common for people to withhold resources, when, even when they might do better to spend them. So let's look at some of those examples. Well, here's a nice apocryphal one. Um, um, so there, no, no here's, uh, let me start off with a, um, uh, a case of from athletics. When athletes are running a marathon, for example, they may reach the end of what they can do and still and collapse from fatigue when, in fact, their muscles still have significant reserves left in them. They could have finished the race and gone on uh, and, in fact, finished it much faster than they did. They gave up too soon. 
when people are about to have a head-on car crash, you think that they really should be pushing the brakes as hard as they can. They don't, um, and they often end up with serious injuries or death as a result of the fact they didn't take the action they needed to stop the car. In fact, Mercedes-Benz some time ago introduced a system called Brake Assist, which has the effect that if the driver pushes the uh, brake pedal hard enough, the car takes over itself and puts it all the way down and stops it. It basically interprets the driver's uh, press on the pedal uh, and, and exaggerates it in order to make sure that the, the, the sufficient pressure is put on, although the driver himself mightn't have done. Um, or here's another example. Um, uh, Japanese economy was a rather good example of this only a few years ago. In an economic depression, it's often essential that people go out and spend their savings. And yet in Japan throughout the 1970s, 80s, 90s, um, people hoarded their money and the Japanese economy went into a tailspin. Um, what was needed was that they actually spent the money they'd got, but they didn't, they hung on to it. So what's the point? What can be going on um, when people don't use much-needed resources when, in fact, they have them available? Well, with the examples just given, I think the answer is fairly obvious. Um, people are simply playing safe. They don't want to use up everything they've got because they can't be sure that there may not be new demands coming around the corner. And, of course, that does often make sense. When you reach the end of a marathon, there may still be a lion waiting for you at the finishing post, and that will suddenly give chase. Um, you don't want to have used up all your, all your possible muscle power. When the economy is already in a bad state, you may need to have, keep your savings um, to cope with becoming unemployed in the future. You don't know what the future risks may be. Um, remember the Bible story of the lamps. This is the one I was going to tell you. Um, the wise and foolish virgins. Remember, they were waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, and the foolish virgins lit their lamps, assuming the bridegroom would be there soon, um, and merrily set them, set them to burn. The wise virgins held on and kept their oil in, uh, uh, safe for when the bridegroom actually would arrive. Well, uh, of course, the bridegroom was late, um, and the uh, foolish virgins found they had no oil left to welcome him with. And uh, the, the wise virgins uh, were obviously the ones who could uh, uh, then perform the proper act of respect of welcoming him, him to the mar marriage. Um, yeah, so it happened to so the poor foolish virgins who uh, used up all their oil. Uh, they were sorry. Well, I want to argue that using up all your resources is in fact something which you shouldn't do uh, in many circumstances, or you will then end up, sorry, like those foolish virgins. But how could that actually apply to healing? Um, could it really be a similar story? If it is, it would seem to imply that getting better, immediately cure, immediate cure of yourself, isn't actually always in your own best interest. Um, it's not most people wouldn't see quite why that would would be would be likely to be true, but actually you don't need to think far long about it to see why it often would be. Um, first, of course, there may be benefits as well as costs to remaining unwell. 
Many kinds of sickness are actually evolved defenses against more serious illness. Pain, for example, stops you causing yet more damage to your body. Um, uh, fever, uh, although it's very uncomfortable for you, helps kill off uh, parasitic bacteria um, and therefore prevents you from becoming still more sick. Um, vomiting, of course, is an obvious example. You vomit it up and it's a horrible experience for you, but you're getting rid of toxins in your body. Now, these defenses, um, obviously, uh, are ones you should... Uh, I mean, you don't want to um, do without them. You don't want not to have the pain or not to vomit or not to have the fever because actually you're benefiting from it. In the case, let's say, of a boy in pain, I've drawn it on a graph here. Um, you can see, uh, does that work? Yes, I think maybe you can see my pointer there. Um, there's the boy with his injured knee. Um, the benefit of the pain is quite high um, because it stops him moving around and possibly doing himself yet further damage. And the cost of the pain to him, it's nasty, but it's not so bad. So the benefit exceeds the cost. Um, but okay, that's one example. But second example is that the costs, uh, there are actually costs as well as benefits to using up your own resources to heal yourself. Um, uh, when costs of a, an immune response, for example, uh, are quite considerable. When you have even a mild cold, your metabolic rate goes up by 15%. Um, it's also your immune response is using up precious resources, uh, particularly carotenes, which are quite difficult to acquire in your diet. Um, and the more you mount a stronger immune response, less you have left, and the longer it's going to take you to actually build up the reserves again. So in the case, let's say, if you have a cold in winter, when at least in the past, um, the uh, possibility of, re of re replenishing your immune resources would have been relatively low because you want sunshine and you want good diet and so on, and you want exercise, all get your immune system going again in winter. You can't. The costs of the immune response when you are sick in winter may be considerably higher than the benefits you'd actually get um, from not having the cold. Um, so it's to be expected, I think, that we humans have been designed by nature to be cautious and not to risk curing ourselves until it's safe to do so. So that's the next principle. The decision as to how fast and how far we should proceed with healing ourselves must be taken in the light of relevant information from the environment about what the uh, what, what's likely to be going on. Um, so with defenses such as pain or fever, you shouldn't let down your defenses until you see signs that the danger has passed. Keep up that pain until you see the doctor arrive, or perhaps it's your mum who's uh, now taking charge of you. You're not going to get into further trouble. She's going to man manage your knee and so on. Therefore, the uh, cost of, so the benefit of the of the pain is not now much less to you. You don't need it. Um, therefore, uh, the benefit's gone down. The cost uh, has remained the same to you, but the pain can now disappear. Um, or when it comes to an immune response, for example, let's take this one. Again, you've got a cold in winter. Um, 
And you shouldn't use up your stock of ammunition against infection unless and until you know there's the possibility of replenishment or, or and also of not having likelihood of a new infection. Well, one good environmental sign for that is sunshine, spring coming, flowers coming out, the seed, the 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 the, 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 the leaves coming back on the trees. Um, and so once if, the, if you have signals that uh, that the, the environment is less threatening in terms of uh, depleting your immune resources, then the cost of, of you mounting your immune resource, mounting your immune reaction is rather less. You can replenish your reserves. Um, the benefit now of getting better is the same, same and your immune response can now uh, go back to the maximum level, which really will get rid of, of the illness. Um, now, this experiment tells us something else, something we could indeed have guessed, that fake information um, will uh, be just as good as real information in changing the way you manage, say, your pain or your immune response. Um, uh, I'm going back one up there. I seem to have lost the slide there. Anyway, um, the information can be make-believe, um, but it's still going to have curative effects. And now I'm going to show you how this works um, with, uh, not with a human in this case. This is the Siberian hamster. Um, a very interesting experiment was done with the hamster. Two groups of hamsters were kept in a lab on different daylight cycles which either indicated that it was winter or that it was summer. And then they were both given an injection of a pathogen, which was going to make them sick. The animals which were kept on the daylight cycle, which indicated it was winter, they mounted simply a very low level immune response, um, a kind of a holding response, and they didn't in fact cure themselves of the, of the sickness. Um, those who thought it was summer because they'd been tricked um, by the daylight cycle to think it was summer. Then, in fact, they threw everything they'd got against the illness um, and uh, uh, mounted a, a full-scale immune response and got better quickly. Now, this experiment tells us something else, which is, uh, there's my slide I wanted, that the relevant information may be make-believe and still going to have effects. For the hamster, this, of course, was was um, entirely a placebo effect in a way because there was no; they were both existing at the same time in the actual same time of year, but they were made to believe that they were either in winter or in summer. Um, and it's not just for hamsters; the same is going to be true for us as well. Here, for example, is I showed the effect of mother love in reducing a child's pain, but it doesn't have to be a mother who's a genuine source of, of tender, loving care. It's going to look after the child, make sure he doesn't get any further injury. Giving him a balloon, which tells him that someone else is looking after him. Great God Elmo is going to smile on this child and keep him safe. That can equally reduce a child's pain. Um, and these are real effects. I mean, we're all familiar with them, actually. Um, or oh, here's another example, going back to that immune response. Um, genuine sunshine is a signal that it's safe to 
mountain immune response, you're less likely to have a future infection coming. You're more likely to be able to replenish your reserves. Um, and uh, so even if you're given fake information about summer being here, some bottle you can buy uh, in some expensive store, which says it tells you that it's effectively going to uh, bring, bring sunshine back into your life, that too will allow you to mount a large, a large immune response. So, as you'll see, these are the very effects that seemed paradoxical to us. These are placebo effects. What placebos do is indeed to give us the benefit, give us the belief that we're on the mend, that we're in safe hands, even if we really aren't. So the paradox of placebos actually makes sense. But much more, I think the placebo effect throws light on the whole way we've evolved to naturally manage our health, the existence of what I've called the natural health service, managed by what I call the health governor. What your health governor does is to perform a kind of economic analysis of what the opportunities and the costs of cure will be, what resources you've got in reserve, how dangerous the situation is right now, what predictions you can make about what the future holds. So it gathers and takes in environmental information, makes the forecast and adjusts your healing resources accordingly, according to what the prediction is about what you can afford to do at that point. So let's say gathers information about risks of infection, energy reserves, social support, uh, what season it is, signs of injury on your body and so on. It then makes a weather forecast about what you can expect down the road. And that health forecast is now used to adjust your health plan, um, how you use your sickness, whether you uh, or use defensive symptoms, whether or not you mount an immune response, whether you go looking for help from other people and so on, and all the sickness behaviors, like whether you put yourself to bed and reduce your workload, et cetera, et cetera. These are made in response to uh, the health plan, which you've deduced from looking at the environmental input. So let's consider the response, for example, to a pathogen, to a bacterium, for example. Okay, you're going to mount an immune response, other things being equal. But in winter, when you've picked up that conditions are likely to be tough, then in fact, your immune response will be downgraded. And that's why, in fact, uh, colds last much longer for us in winter than they do in summer. By contrast, um, if all the signs are that uh, spring is in the air, then in fact you can afford to make a much stronger immune response. And so indeed people do, um, not only to natural environments, but it's been shown that, for example, that uh, if you're on a hospital ward where you have a view of spring landscape uh, out the window, your uh, immune responses are stronger, your wound healing is, is stronger and so on. Um, altogether, you use your healing resources much more effectively, much more quickly than you would if, in the experiment, your ward 
looked out simply on a dreary, dreary a brick wall. Um, in those cases, uh, the patients apparently interpret it as a bad environment and therefore hold on to their resources, don't release their immune resources. Um, or a doctor can have the same kind of effect. A doctor tells you, firstly, that you're not you're not likely to have another illness following on from it, and that you're uh, that you're in a caring environment where you're going to be fed and you're going and you're going to be uh, able to risk expending your resources um, because you know that there are the others there or social there's going to be a social network which will support you, and uh, this is going to work. But even with a placebo doctor, even with a doctor who really doesn't know what he's doing. Um, or she's doing it, I should say, um, who's just pretending to have expertise. doesn't matter. Quack doctors work. They actually improve your chances of getting better because they induce you to heal yourself because you feel they provide a safety signal. They make you feel relatively that things are going to, to be all right. And interestingly, it's been shown that with quack medicines, um, giving people oxytocin at the same time, that so-called trust hormone um, is very effective. It makes them you're more likely to respond to a placebo if you believe in it because you've been induced by your hormones to trust uh, the doctor or the, or the pharmacist or whoever it is or the healer who's giving you the crack uh, medicine. Um, unless it still will work. The opposite effect. Uh, oh no, here's one I wanted to mention, an interesting one. When women are pregnant, um, and mounting a strong immune resource immune response could possibly damage their fetus. Again, that's information which the health governor takes into account and suppresses immune responses. You're less likely to heal yourself quickly from a cold or the flu if you're pregnant um, than uh, than if you aren't. And the reason is you're protecting your unborn child. Um, of course, this means you yourself may suffer at least for the time being, but nonetheless, it's good for the baby. Some very interesting new research has shown that the effect of a child isn't always to lower your immune response. Of course, when it's in your own, in your own body, then it would be dangerous to mount an immune response. Okay, but now let's imagine your child is out there in the world, and instead of being a possible drain on you, something you have to protect, is possibly a source of support. What the study showed is that uh, that women who have more children mount stronger immune responses to pathogens. Um, and extraordinarily, the children don't have to be living at home. Um, they, uh, they, it's, uh, it's independent of whether the, top, the, the, the mother is married or not. Just the, somehow or another, the knowledge that she has these children who presumably in the past would, would have meant that she was much more likely to be able to rely on being looked after herself uh, if, she was, if it was needed, meant that she felt free and does still feel free to mount a stronger immune response. Um, sorry, let's go back to that. That's the wrong one. Okay. Um, so the other side of that, and perhaps we can say that Having lots of children, at least in the past, made you feel that there was a grand future ahead of you and give you a sense of purpose in life. We know that 
the opposite effect can occur if, for whatever reason, you're led to believe that you've been cursed, that things are bad, um, and not that you can't hope for the best, and you're not going to be looked after. And many examples of where people have felt themselves under the influence of some malign force, even a completely unreal one, and where they then will die from illnesses they wouldn't otherwise have died from because they no, no longer take the risk of using their immune resources. So now you'll perhaps begin to see um, how I'm going to make a connection to the other kind of priming effects I talked about at the start. So here's my idea. Um, if this is the way we've evolved to manage our physical health, there must surely be a similar story to tell about our mental health. And if it's true of our mental health, then maybe it's how we manage our own personality and our characters as well. Perhaps humans have evolved a full-blown natural self-service uh, and a self-governor, we could say, um, with the job of managing our combined psychological resources so as to optimize the persona we present to the world. Again, we read the local signs um, so as to forecast the psychological weather we're heading into. Um, this, we read about whether people are watching us, what families around, what stereotypes uh, are being put in our way, um, whether we belong to a, a, a well-ordered and, and safe society, and so on. Then, in that case, we self-regulate and okay, our self-forecast now, um, and it can affect our optimism, our degree of cooperation, uh, the courage we show, our conformity, conforming we are, and even things like our intelligence. Um, so, show the examples again. In Melissa Bateson's experiment, these eyes were there, which suggest that they introduce a uh, uh, sense that we are, in fact, being observed and we therefore behave more responsibly and pay more for the milk. Um, when in that experiment with the animations, we saw out of the corner of our eye that we were in a, an environment where uh, people weren't going to be likely to behave well to each other. Um, then, in fact, our trust in other people goes down. And in the game, people were more likely to defect rather than cooperate. Um, and we have signs that we're surrounded by gossips and so on. Our paranoia is going to go up. All these may be quite unconscious influences. We don't need to be clocking these things on our environment for them to be effective in changing the kind of people we are. Uh, on a big social level, signs of, 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 that, of that we can be confident in the general kind of stability and order of the uh, society in which we exist um, is going to make us more, more cooperative and maybe more conforming ourselves. Um, or looking at stereotypes, for example, if we are African-American man, for example, who's shown a stereotype like that, interestingly enough, in lots of ways, it can increase overt amiability, but at the same time, as it actually decreases how the subject's likely to perform on a maths test. So, and just are these, are these um, 
uh, as with the health management system, there are placebo effects. There are going to be placebo effects with the self. Cases where fake information is bringing about a false estimate of what the future holds for us, um, and thus an inappropriate adjustment to our personality. Indeed, of course, the eyes in the room were actually fake, and yet they did have the effect on how responsible the subjects were. Okay, and all the other things I showed could, of course, have, have fake uh, versions of them, which would probably have the same effects on how we score on intelligence tests and so on. So that's the theory. Um, I've developed, a certain, I've moved around. I began with primary effects. I went through the placebo effect in health. I've moved more now to thinking about how it works for levels of how we govern our mental health, the kind of way we interact with other people uh, as social beings and so on. But now this is an important practical question. Can we actually take these ideas beyond theory? Um, can we use them to help us design practical interventions to promote human welfare? Well, I think we should be able to. We need to begin by recognizing that where humans, where human beings have come from, the central governors I talked about, both the health governor and the self-governor um, that modern humans are born with, have evolved when our ancestors were living under very different material and social circumstances from those we're in today. So-called environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, when we lived in small-scale hunter-gathering communities. Um, everybody was known to each other. There was very close monitoring of what everybody else was doing. You couldn't get away with anything behind anybody's back because you would always be observed and taken to task for it. No privacy. People were obliged to conform, and they were seriously punished for breaking ranks. Um, at the same time as this, and that's perhaps why the societies were so conformist and cooperative, was there were huge environmental challenges, um, intergroup warfare, uh, major environmental catastrophes, and so on. Um, it may look a nice environment to have lived in, but of course it was actually pretty hellish. And our, um, uh, our ways we assess the meaning of environmental cues evolved in that kind of situation. Um, in those days, to respond to placebos, to respond to fake information, might actually have been a big mistake. Our central governors had evolved to know what was best for us, and we would indeed have responded to false information about our circumstances at our own peril. Um, we couldn't afford to respond to snake oil when uh, things were, in fact, designed when we're in a situation where uh, lack of taking in incorrect information about the future uh, would be likely to lead us into further trouble. Um, so we wouldn't have wanted to amount an expensive immune response when we couldn't afford it. Or for that matter, we wouldn't want to be too trusting uh, when we actually were in a group of defectors and we'd be likely to be cheated. But of course, our circumstances have generally improved in the last 50,000 years. And that means there are many things we can afford, doing now, afford to do now, which we couldn't risk doing in the past. We now can risk taking these chances. Um, for example, the widespread availability of food, even in winter, means it's much safer to spend our immune defenses. The general spread of trust, even between strangers, means we don't have to be shy about collaborating. 
the spread of feminism, at least in some parts of the world, means women won't be punished for being intelligent, and so on. And yet evolutionary catch-up can only occur relatively slowly. So in many areas of our lives, the settings of our central governors are likely to be seriously out of date. So here's my idea. While in the past, responding to placebos would indeed have been inherently risky, today responding to placebos may be essential to releasing the full potential of modern human beings. It's widely recognized that placebo medicine for the body can indeed be a good thing, but few scientists have paid serious attention to the possibility of placebo treatments for the self. And I think we need to rethink this. I'd say we should be going all out to devise just such placebo treatments. Treatments which trick people into coming out from their protective shells and so emerging as happier, nicer, cleverer, more creative people than they would otherwise have dared to be, this kind of thing. But let's not stop at placebo posters, posters which give people the idea that their, their chances are actually likely, likely to be good if only they'll let their guard down and go for them. Um, we should, I think, be developing placebos at all sorts of other levels, placebo architecture, placebo schools, placebo religions, placebo art, placebo clothing to bring out people's hidden potential. And the fact is, of course, we have been doing it without understanding it for a long time. In fact, I'd say that many of the most revered monuments of, and institutions of our societies function as placebos, helping to manipulate physical and social health. Here's, of course, a famous example, uh, Stonehenge. Um, Stonehenge is now believed by many archeologists was actually a kind of hospital. The, the, the blue stones uh, at the center of it came in fact from the Priscilla Hills in Wales, where they'd long been revered as curative stones. People went to them to touch them and they were transported to Stonehenge in order to add to the curative effect of this grand hospital environment. Uh, 13th century poet put it very nicely. The stones are great and magic power they have. Men that are sick fare to that stone and they wash that stone and with that water bathe away their sickness. But Stonehenge is not just a, uh, just a hospital, of course. It was also a place of exceptional order and human majesty. So it must have functioned not just to cure people, but generally to make them feel good about themselves. Um, being in that presence of that uh, kind of structure would have made you feel you belong to a very safe and stable and caring and clean and orderly society. And so on, it's gone on down the ages. Uh, all these monuments must have had the same kinds of effects on the people who lived alongside them, making them feel that society was a safe and responsible place uh, where they could cooperate, they could trust, and they could, in fact, afford to do things which in the distant past, they probably wouldn't have been able to afford. Hunter-gatherers can't afford to live the kinds of lives which people lived under the pharaohs or in the Taj Mahal. Um, run through these. Of course, it can mean placebo rituals as well. Okay. Um, 
Now, you may think this is all getting a bit hand-wedy and so on. So the um, uh, question is really, can these ideas be made more formal in some way? I developed them pretty much as a kind of descriptive level. Um, and I was glad to find that, in fact, some mathematicians at Bristol uh, actually tried to model them in mathematical model to see whether, uh, for example, my ideas about why why we get respond placebo effects which uh, either upgrade or downgrade our immune system could actually be working. Well, I'll just read that conclusion. Based on an argument put forward by Humphrey, I see 2002, it seems a long way time ago now, um, we present simple mathematical models of the placebo effect that involve a trade-off between the costs and benefits of allocating resources to a current problem. These models show why the effect occurs and how its magnitude and timing can depend on different factors. We conclude that a deeper understanding of why the placebo effect exists may allow it to be invoked more easily in the future. Well, I'd hope so. Okay. But um, now, have I got a few more minutes? Can, I, can you tell me? Unless you intervene, I'm going to... Them. We're um, probably five, five or ten minutes. So, yeah, take Good, your time. Okay. I may take an, an, another ten. Um, here's something new that I'm thinking about. I said that the health and self-governance are evolutionary, very ancient. The rules they work by are likely to be hardwired into the brain. Nonetheless, it would be surprising if there weren't at least some possibility of learning by experience. So it's modifying the relations, the forecast you make on the basis of uh, some things you've discovered for yourself, not just inherited from your evolutionary past. Suppose it becomes obvious that the forecast the government's been making has been too bleak. Then can the governor be induced to change its settings so that it's prepared to take greater risks. And I think the suggestive evidence exactly fit this in the field of athletics. I mentioned already the surprising fact that athletes give up before they need to, but can they learn not to? And actually, yes, there's a strategy well known to athletes called um, uh, interval training. Some of you may even, even have practiced it. You engage in shorter periods of strenuous work followed by rest, and then you do that again and again. If you're a sprinter, for example, you sprint for two minutes and then relax, and then you jog for five minutes, and then you relax. Sorry, then you sprint again, and then you repeat the pattern. And the result is, it's very effective. You soon find that you can actually run about 15% better, uh, faster than you could before. Now, why does it work? You might think it has to do with the mechanical stretching of muscles, but does it really work on the mind and not the body? The answer seems to be that it is indeed entirely in the mind. It's a psychological effect. Nearly a century ago, the Nobel Prize winning uh, physiologist A.V. Hill showed that people get psychologically exhausted um, long before they their muscles become physically exhausted. And he argued that fatigue is in fact a psychological top-down defense to protect muscles from overstrain and to keep something in reserve. So it seems that what happens during interval training is your brain learns by experience it's okay to push yourself a little further. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, further than you, than you might otherwise have dared to. And it raises the threshold for the onset of precautionary fatigue, as Hill called it. 
But what we're talking about here is, of course, a special instance of the working of a central governor. And in fact, let me say it, say it now, it was Hill who was the first to use this term, central governor. Uh, and my excuse for adopting it, my theory of the health governor and self-governor, is not only that Hill did indeed get there first, but that he was my grandpa. There's my mother under the uh, yellow arrow there. So here's my suggestion. If interval training can be used to change the settings of Hill's central governor for exercise, could the same strategy be used to change settings for the health governor and self-governor in other areas of life? In particular, what about the possibility of using it to boost the performance of the immune system? If, the, if people are not deploying their immune resources to maximum extent, could we teach them by a similar schedule of exercise for the immune system that it really is safe to do so? And here's the experiment. It hasn't been tried yet. If any immunologists out there, please take this as an as a, uh, opportunity to do an interesting experiment. We'll do it with hamsters, I imagine, before we try it in humans. We'll take a hamster who believes that it's winter because he's kept on a daylight cycle, which makes him think it's winter, um, and we give him a bacterial infection. The hamster gets sick, and he mounts only a limited immune response because he thinks it's not safe, it's winter, I can't afford to use up all my resources. And then 24 hours after that, uh, we give him an antibiotic, um, which actually means it killed the bacteria are killed off and he gets completely better. A week later, we repeat the experiment. Um, we give him the path of the infection again, um, and this time, let's hope, he actually risks mounting a slightly better immune response, stronger one, and at the end of that, uh, we actually, as it were, reward him by curing his body with the injection of an antibiotic. And then we do it again and again. Um, what I hope we'd find is that the hamster's health governor will learn that it can, in fact, afford to use more of the resources than it otherwise would have dared to, because every time it goes to its own self-imposed limits, it discovers it's followed by safe recovery. So eventually, the hamster, which thought it was winter, has, which has been through interval training for its immune system, will be responding as if it's summer. Now, if this were to work with people, imagine how it might turn medicine around. It might be one of the best ways ever of doing what medicine might ought primarily to be about, getting us to use our own healing resources to greater and better effect. I'm going to give you one more example, if I may, Niall, because I don't want to restrict this just to medicine. How about doing the same for the self? How about interval training for cooperativeness or creativity or intelligence? Could we teach Could we teach the self-governor by some kind of stepwise exposure that it's safe to be trusting, safe to be creative, safe to be clever, that no harm will come of it? Well, there's some tantalizing evidence in research by uh, a, a Hungarian psychologist called Irvin Staub. He's now American. He calls his research learning by doing. What Staub, Staub Irvin Staub did uh, he showed that if you trick people, even against their will, into acts of kindness to strangers, they'd actually become better, kinder people. A quote from one of his experiments. I induced children, 
right? Um, find that again. Um, I induced children to engage in helpful acts and found that afterwards they helped and shared more. Children who taught a younger child, uh, who wrote letters to hospitalized children or made toys for poor hospitalized children became more helpful on later occasions than children who spent the same time in activities were similar in nature, but not helpful in others. In other words, what Stark was doing with little children was tricking them into being kind, um, and the effects were brilliant. They actually became genuinely kind. And I'll end with one last example of this. Um, my sister and her husband lived in a house in Camden Town, which when they bought it had an old lady living in the basement. She was a sitting tenant and of course she stayed on. She's an old and rather uh, incapacitated woman um, who had problem with cleaning herself. And for example, when she'd uh, gone to the lavatory and had a shit, she couldn't actually clean her bottom uh, in the way she wanted to and was, was determined that should be done. So what she did, she would go to the window of the downstairs flat and knock on it with, uh, knock on the window with her stick. Passers-by coming along would look down and see this sweet old lady knocking on the window with her stick um, and think she needed help. So they'd open the gate, go down, see what she needed, open the door um, and find out that actually what she wanted was to have her bottom wiped. Well, almost everybody did. They helped her. And my sister would watch from an upstairs window as these people who'd been tricked into an act of kindness wandered on down the street, holding their heads high, apparently feeling really good about themselves because they had been uh, induced to be better people than in fact they believed, they probably believed that they actually were before they'd uh, undertake and undertaken uh, that, that uh, particular been tricked into that particular example of it. So I'll end the talk there because um, I have more things I could talk about. In fact, on your slide handouts, you'll see some other issues I might have raised. But let's end with Nelly and the wonderful effect she had on people who passed on the street and uh, were induced by a kind of placebo treatment to be better people. So thank you. <clears throat> First question is from uh, Graham, and he's asked, what is your view of the nocebo effect? Well, I think the nocebo effect is entirely to be predicted because it's a case where people are given information that their prospects are worse than they really are. Um, and, of course, what they then do is withhold their own healing resources. So it, uh, I think they're a complete mirror image of each other. Um, both of these effects nocebo and placebo are part of the general uh, way in which pe people manage their own health system by taking account of environmental information. If it's falsely positive, it's a placebo effect. If it's falsely negative, it's a nocebo effect. Um, and very important, I think, to know about, um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I wrote to a friend of mine, Ronson Nudge Unit, at Downing Street and said one thing I was really worried about was that the locking down, 
with panic buying, supermarket shelves empty of blue paper and, and, and resources, et cetera, et cetera, would be very like putting the hamster on the daylight cycle, which made it think it was winter. It would suggest to people that things are looking really bad and that you can't afford to take risks with healing yourself. Because in a, an environment of real shortage and panic and social isolation, you're, in fact, in a very dangerous situation. And therefore, you'd expect it would make people downregulate their, their immune response. And so what I said, look, was you may end up with fewer infections as a result, but people are going to be less likely to, to get better precisely because of the psychological state you've induced by these lockdown measures. Um, uh, he didn't reply to it, and I don't think anyone <laughs> paid any attention to it. But nonetheless, I think it's a serious kind of issue. I think public health uh, people, and as well as politicians and, and, and hospital doctors, need to be more aware than they are of the psychological effects their treatments are having, and to realize that it doesn't, you know, scaring people is going to make them less likely to allow themselves to get well. Now, it could even be people wonder why uh, people, less people are dying of COVID now than, than, than were earlier on. It could be because lockdown measures are not so severe. People have got used to the idea. They don't frighten them to the same extent that they were. Um, and they actually know there's plenty of loop paper in reserve. Um, so, uh, I mean, this is a semi-serious suggestion. People are looking for all sorts of other explanations for why people are better at getting better from COVID now than they were. I think it could, could be that they're more prepared to use their immune, their own immune systems to self-heal. Wow, that's a really interesting perspective. I hadn't thought of that. Um, Alexandra has asked, uh, related to the idea of eyes on you, um, what might be going on with people who ignore everyone and talk and sing to themselves out loud in public and are not schizophrenic? Is this a form of dissociation? Is it a form of self-regulation when they experience the environment as threatening due to uh, past traumas, for example? Uh, I don't, I want, when people, you mean people who go happily down the street with smiling and whistling under all difficulties. Um, I, it's uh, it's it's partly a form of self-regulation. I think you can certainly make um, make make yourself feel happier by actually undertaking uh, the face and the voice and so on, which goes with being happier. Um, that's been shown in, in quite a lot of studies. So, so we can, to some extent, take control of our own emotions uh, by just by simply where we comport ourselves. Um, I. Then, uh, I don't think it's a form of schizophrenia. Uh, it, well, it depends what she's talking about. I don't know whether she was thinking of people who, who actually behave as if the rest of the world didn't exist or was, uh, or, 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 was, or, was uh, or that they weren't a part, part of the community in any human way. That's a very different kind of view of, of, of what's going on, and that could make people behave in strange ways too. Has knowing what you know about placebos influenced how you approach your own life in any way? Has this changed your behavior at all? Yes, I, I, I'd say I'd, I'd say it has. I mean, I try and uh, uh, persuade myself that medicines are going to work. Interestingly enough, 
There's new research which shows that even if you know something is a placebo, it will still work, which is really quite unexpected in a way. But uh, it was first discovered by uh, Fabrizio Benedetti in Italy, who does research on placebos. He found that even when he injected himself after he'd uh, uh, give, had a, a painful uh, uh, um, pain-inducing shock to his hand, and even then when he injected himself with what he knew was placebo, just saline, nonetheless the pain went down. Um, I read this as the fact that Benedetti had worked doing this experiment again and again with other human volunteers, seen the effect again and again that the placebo effect reduces people's sensitivity to pain, and therefore had imported that information into his own self-regulatory system. So he himself believed it was going to work, even though as a scientist, he couldn't think of any good reason for it. Um, it's also, it's been shown in other clinical trials, for example, that a placebo treatment, especially for um, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, for some reason that's one people have concentrated on, it works even if people are told it's a placebo. But what they're told is, not just it's a placebo, they're, they're not told it's a fake medicine, they're told this is a medicine which actually will cure, it's likely to cure your illness. We've got lots of experimental evidence for that. We don't know how it works, but it works. Um, right. And then the placebo effect will work. It's rather important. It's, I mean, doctors have often been rather cagey about prescribing placebos. They weren't in the past, but uh, more recently, ethics committees have said that, you know, we really must not tell lies to patients. And that's meant they're less willing than they would have been in the past to give very effective placebo treatments. If they can now put this in the phrase it in a different way, by using just that kind of language. Um, this is placebo treatment. Uh, it's been known to be effective, um, and we're giving it to you because we hope it'll work for you too, even though we don't understand why it will work. That's incredible. Um, I was actually having a couple of drinks with a friend the other night who's pregnant, and she's obviously drinking non-alcoholic, it was non-alcoholic Prosecco, and she was saying she was feeling like, she was feeling a bit drunk, um, just from it must have been the environment or something. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's it's powerful. Um, you mentioned interval training for the self-governor, or you, you mentioned um, an example of that. Have you got any other any other practical ways people could maybe implement that in their own in, in their own life? Well, I, that's just what I was thinking about. Now, I mean, I don't know the only example in the scientific literature. Is, is, this is, in fact, in case of actual practical sporting uh, literature, is the one with exercise. Um, but if the reasons, if the, my account of why it works is is anything like right, it ought to be transferable to a whole lot of other situations. So that's just why I thought out that experiment of interval uh, training for the immune system. Um, no one's yet thought of doing it, but... You know, it would be a very simple and cheap experiment to do. And as I said, it's what medicine ought really to be about and medical research too is trying to harness and exploit our own health, our own self-healing resources. Um, it's a kind of research which doesn't get easily funded by major pharmaceutical companies for obvious reasons because it's going to undermine the market for drugs. 
A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Okay, so we've got a question from Alison here. Could this hypothesis go some way towards explaining why colds are more common in the winter? In other words, people mm-hmm. allow themselves to become more susceptible and the colds linger longer, making it yes. more likely they will infect others. There's no, no question that that's, well, there's no question that that's true. And I think this this this, this theory is at least a good way of saying why it should be true. Um, and as we've seen, there are, in fact, animal models like the Siberian hamster, where it's actually been tested. Very interesting. Um, we've got but one here. The interesting thing, to go back to the point I made, humans are very sensitive to other cues than simply the season. And so all sorts of environments could be interpreted by our ancient health governors as being the equivalent of a threatening uh, winter environment, prison, for example, or you know, unemployment. They're all going to have the same sorts of effects. And, you know, there's lots of epidemiology showing how, how when somebody lose, loses their job, they start suffering all sorts of physical illnesses. And I'd say it's not that they're catching more. It's that they're not allowing themselves to cure themselves because they don't feel good about the future. Wow. Okay. Um, we've got one here from Frank. Is Sir Roger Bannister's running the sub four minute mile, or I think it was a sub five minute mile, I'm not sure. No, but is this an example of four minute mile, okay? Yeah, four minute, yeah. Um, is this an yeah. example of overcoming psychological fatigue? Well, yes, presumably it must have been. I mean, what, what you know, what training has to do with this persuade, it's not just about increasing the strength or length of your muscle fibers, it is to do with managing your your, your, your own attitude towards pain and stress and so on. Um, I don't think Bannister used interval training. I don't think people had discovered it at that point. Um, and, of course, Bannister's four-minute mile is, has now been superseded again and again by modern athletes, um, probably not in some sense uh, as great athletes as he is, but have got much better training regimes, um, which have allowed them to build uh, and, and, and go even further. Palestin, interesting enough, is perhaps you know he's a he's a he's a neuropsychologist at Queen's Square, um, and uh, I've talked to him quite often about these issues. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so we've got one from Toby. Um, giving the suggestions of your work and the work of thinkers such as Daniel Kahneman in identifying the effect of an infinite amount of external stimuli on us and the consequent confabulatory explanations people give for making decisions and actions. Do you think free will is an illusion? Uh, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a question which goes far beyond discussion of the placebo effect. I don't think free will is an illusion in the sense that what I understand by free will is that we can do what we want. Um, and the only decision under which free will is constrained is when we're in shackles. Um, it's basically, uh, I don't think we that there's anything deeply going, going on at the level of physics, which means that we're somehow able to overcome physical determinism. But what I believe is that, um, is what, what, is that when, what I'm saying when I say I'm free to move my hand or say what I want or whatever it may be, what I mean is that I have a control over this which no one else has. Uh, no one else can move my hand. No one else can speak my words. Therefore, in that very important uh, uh, way, they are my actions. And mm. it's for the, for the very fact that things um, belong to me, which means that I effectively can count 
um, on, on free will. Um, but that's not a, that's not answering the question at the metaphysical level. It's answering the psychological one. I think, uh, you know, no question people have and believe they have free will just for that reason, that they do, can and often do behave in the ways they wish to, uh, overcoming any possible external constraints. Okay, that was an easy question for you towards the end. <laughs> um, let me see if we've got, we've got quite a few, we've probably got time for one more question. Uh, let me see, got quite a few here. We've got one, one from Ruth Freeman. She's asked, why do human beings gravitate towards order, do you think? Well, it's, it's a very interesting question, but I think it is a proxy for, for a well-managed and stable society. I mean, it's, it's at lots of levels. I mean, it's also cleanliness is clearly correlated with good health and absence of pathogens and infection and so on. But uh, uh, order produced by you know, simply upright posture and, and, and well-managed uh, physical uh, uh, actions is, again, a sign of good health, which we should seek and we want to be in the presence of other people who behave like that. But at the level of society, order takes management, cooperation. It requires co uh, the absence of cheats um, and people who are going to undermine it and so on. And therefore, order, whether it's level of the pyramids or Stonehenge, um, I think uh, is a very good sign that we're living in an environment where we can count on things remaining relatively stable and can count on support from others if we fall. Um, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very reasonable assumption that order should um, be correlated with good health. But uh, there are other aesthetic reasons, I think, for loving order, whether it's in music or, or, or painting or architecture, whatever it may be, which go to a different level, which are to do with actually the way we train our perceptual systems and the way we learn to categorize the world around us. Um, I wrote an essay a long time ago, it's called The Illusion of Beauty, which was exactly about how looking for order in the environment was the best way we could possibly go about learning what's out there and how to classify it. That's incredible. Well, Professor Humphrey, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us here today. Um, I think people have really, really enjoyed this. So thank you very much. I know this is the first ever online presentation you've given. So thanks for, for doing this. It's been great. Um, your website, is it www.humphrey.org? Is that the pl best place to find yes. you? .org.uk, I think. Okay. And any other places you'd like to send people online, uh, resources to check out before they go or... Anything you'd like to recommend? We made a film about the placebo effect. I think I sent you the link for that today. Um, I think that was included in the reading recommendations for this. May have been, yes. One was a major film made for Discovery Channel, uh, which I think is terrific. Um, that's a full hour long film. And then a vice, very nice little video made for the Royal Society, uh, which is five minutes. Um, I think I sent you both those links at some point. I think that was, this was back in March when we were doing the yeah. original event. Um, so. I mean, I think I, I, the, the, the Discovery Channel film, I think uh, it's, it's several, it could be in 2006, I think, but I think it stands out very well. It's got some extraordinary examples of just how effective placebos can be. Brilliant. Well, Professor Humphrey, thanks again. It's been a pleasure and I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. And you too. Thanks to everybody.
Thanks everybody for tuning in as well. Um, just for supporting the project. It's I really appreciate it. And I hope to see you guys at a future event. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. <laughs>